and welcome to this week's episode of Mum Talk Series 4, Episode 6, and this week is Guest Week. This week, I am chatting with an incredible author called Tanith Carey. She has written so many books, mostly around child psychology, and recently she has released two books, The Friendship Maze and also What's My Child Thinking?, Today we're chatting mostly about friendships and the friendship maze, all about how we as parents and adults can help our children navigate their way around friendships. It makes for a really interesting read. We touch on so many different topics within this podcast, from social media to phones to bullying to helping our children understand the hierarchy um, in schools, cliques forming, etc., etc., I still can relate to so much of what she is talking about. It really does make for an interesting listen. So I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you have any questions, do direct message me on Instagram, which is just Mum Talk Podcast. I hope you enjoy. Having a look through your book, and it it looks fantastic. I wish my mum had had this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my daughter's only eight months old, so we're not quite at that point yet. But I do worry that you know when she goes to school, I won't know how to handle things. I know I said a lot of the wrong things and did a lot of the wrong stuff, and hmm. I would I want to know what to do in those scenarios when my daughter you know maybe experiences the same thing. Or, you know, maybe she'll be part of a clique and I want her to be inclusive of everybody. Um, yeah, that's really good for thinking. Yeah, no, I mean, I, what you're saying is exactly right, is that um, as parents, we often bring our own memories of our own school days and then we worry on behalf of our children. And But what we often do is bring our worst memories and then we become, so we can become a little bit overprotective. Mm. And the point about this book is rather than to... to um, fly to the rescue and try and sort out with the parents or intervene is to sort of give your child the cape their own cape in order to just sort of to look after themselves and know how to deal with really difficult social situations and also to put everything in context because I think that um there's been so much discussion about bullying over the last 20 years and rightly so um that we've become really hyper vigilant to it and we tend to think look, this, the smallest sort of little interaction is always the start of bullying and then we read these sort of news reports about how 10 11 year olds you know they kill themselves and we're absolutely gripped by panic mm. so there obviously something is changing and children's friendships are more difficult but also i wanted to sort of bring the social science research really empower parents and just help them put things in perspective so they really feel rather than sort of just have that panic where they just don't know what to do or say and they maybe overreact they actually kind of they they have it grounded in science and research what the best thing the best ways are to respond yeah so that's the aim of this book so i mean yeah all my books are really trying to address the most current issues in parenting because it's a very evolving scene and the most challenging things that have cropped up because we're just moving into we're living in such a kind of fast-moving society um, so, we, like you know, like 10 years ago, I wrote one of the sort of first UK books on the early sexualization of children, and then I've written about parental pressure, and I've written in Tame the Tiger Parent about all this pressure bearing down on kids in schools. Mm. And I felt that, obviously, we're in a bit of a well-being crisis here with children, and I felt that their friendships was one issue that we hadn't really addressed. Because often, if a child has friendship issues, that can be a tipping point if they're already having a bad time because friendships are so incredibly important to them and their well-being and their self-esteem. So that's really what I'm trying to do with um, the friendship maze. 
Oh, absolutely. God, I mean, it sounds incredible. So let's backtrack slightly. You have written a lot of books, it sounds mm. like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so give us a little bit of background um, to kind of how you started writing all of these books around um, the psychology of children, essentially. Mm. Yeah, so I have two children and they're now 14 and 16. And when I first had Lily and Cleo, um, I just really wanted to understand them and I wanted to really spread that information because I was in a certain incredibly, I was in the mirror parenting editor for a while and I was in an incredibly privileged situation of talking to the top minds and analysing issues as they came up very fast. So I really wanted to sort of, obviously it's great when they're in newspapers, but obviously have something more substantial that would be guides that parents could turn to. So, I mean, my first book, all of my books sort of chart my own parenting. My first book was called How to Be an Amazing Mum When You Just Don't Have the Time, which I feel a bit guilty about now, actually, because <laughs> it's like really, you know, time is the most precious thing that we have. But, I mean, actually, that was, a, that was an attempt for, to, uh, in an early way, to try and just basically prioritise the time we have and make more time for them and do things more efficiently so that we had more one-on-one time with them, we could really enjoy them. Yes. Um, and then I wrote a, girl, a book called Where's My Little Girl Gone, which there was a lot of panic, I guess, when Lily was about four or five, about there were all those T-shirts saying, you know, supermodel and, you know, a lot of sexualization. like it was almost getting ahead of us and there was a lot of concern about the well-being of young girls, so I wrote that book. And so it's gone on from there, really. And then, I, you know, I, I just try, as I see it, you know, because I'm writing for the Telegraph and, and the Mail and the Guardian and, I mean, all those papers, then I'm really in a position to sort of join the dots on social trends. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I'm really very lucky from that point of view. And also I write about what I need to learn. You know, I've had issues in my own parenting and I've been, you know, I've, I've wanted to try and address those and then just basically spread that, that what I've learned from, you know, the great psychologists and educators and teachers that I meet and just make it really... Um, accessible to parents you know and and I know that we're all really busy and we don't have much time but actually I think that you know if we do have a great parenting book it could really make our lives an awful lot better because we can understand our children and ourselves that's really what my books try to do oh I'm so so happy that you are on the podcast then because (laughs) it really feels like our values are completely in line because the reason I started the podcast was because I had tons of questions about being a new mum I'm the first in my family to, um, or out of in my sisters and my cousins to, um, be a mum. And I had so many questions and I thought, okay, well, I'll start a podcast. I'll selfishly be able to speak to all of the experts mm. and learn everything, but then I can that's also amazing. share it with everybody at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Yeah. It's communication. I mean, let's all keep talking and just, you know, just doing the best for ourselves and our kids and raising the next generation. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So a big question that I do have, because obviously in the well, in the world that we live in now, we're growing up with social media. Kids are very much growing up with social media. Um, yeah. And at school, I can imagine I didn't have social media when I was at school, and um, you didn't either. But how are parents to deal with social media and school? And I mean, I'm sure it's a huge topic, but it's essentially mm. it's one that comes to my mind quite a lot Mm. is when I'm when I'm on my phone and I'm doing Mm. bits on Instagram social media and I'm seeing what people are writing about and I'm thinking oh Mm. my goodness when when Amandine goes to school and she starts to be around Mm. all of this as well I have no idea how I can 
how I would deal with it. I mean, I think if I was there now, I'd be thinking, no, you're not on Instagram. I don't want Mm. you to be a part of it at all. But Mm. that's probably Mm. not the way to handle it. Absolutely. I know. <laughs> so see what we have to do from an early age is make our children really media literate. Now that seems silly when you know they're tiny and two and grabbing your phone. But we have to. I mean, first of all, in those early years, obviously there's increasing amounts of research, and it's it won't be very popular, I guess. But you know, the research is saying, please, please don't put phones in their hands too early. I think we've been led a merry dance where we've been told, oh, they're learning things, or they're training for the future, or they're improving their skills. There's absolutely no research to say that um, giving a child a phone and letting them play on it for a while is going to be any good for them. I mean, I know it's great for parents, and it's a great like way to keep them entertained, but we're just making a lot of problems for ourselves further down the line. And that's why we've got words like iPad-y when you take the phone away and the child is completely um, losing it. Do you know what I mean? Um, now, I know, as I said, this isn't very popular, but I mean, as the more research we see, it's just not looking good. You know, it's almost the phone's got ahead of us and we're only catching up now with what they're doing to our kids. Oh, wow. So if you, if we are going to do phones with them um, early on, I don't know if that's what you meant, but obviously, and then I'll go on to the social media, then we have to put very, very tight boundaries around them. And we also have to put very tight boundaries around what we're doing in front of them because, the main problem with, with phones is they send a message very quickly to children that what's on the phone is much more interesting than what's in real life, and then it becomes a de- default. And also what we've got is children turning up in nursery school, and they're not really – don't have the friendship or communication skills they should have because, you know, a large proportion of their young lives has been spent not playing role play or let's pretend or shops or cafes or just chatting it's been spent it's been spent looking at a dark screen and I know it looks colorful and lovely and all the rest of it and it's amazing the way little kids fingers can move around but it's really really not doing them any good so I'm sorry I'm a bit hardcore on this no it's great I, <laughs> so, I, yeah. I'm really I'm really really interested by it actually um so yeah. it's, it's I think we're just coming to a realization now that actually it's not good I mean it's more of a health issue really phones and kids and social media because we're now seeing 10 years, you know, after Instagram, for example, what that's what that's doing to our kids, you know, and it's like it's creating this, tol- this culture of comparison in these children by the time they're 11 or 12 or 13 where they just, they find it really hard, you know, kids are by their, by, by their very nature, by 10, 12, 13, comparing themselves anyway. And when, you know, when every, um, you know, celebrity and even their close friends, they think that better than them, it just, it just, again, it's one of those other tipping points, which is making our children in Britain particularly, because our children have, are some of the heaviest social media users in the world. Is really why, yes, they are, yeah, definitely. Um, is, one of the reasons why our children are very vulnerable at the moment to, um, you know, are not are struggling a bit, actually. So sorry to be a bit of a dreary one on that, but yeah. it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. I mean, with my children, for example, you know, I have an app where I, I remotely control, not just like, I give them an hour. So they have an hour to go on it and they can monitor how much of that, when they use that hour, do you see what I mean? And that takes the heat out of the situation because the other thing I see, I know this is not for you at the moment, but further down the line is parents and children having terrible rows, even fist fights, swearing fits when the parent tries to regain control and the parent and the child is so, just really feels they can't live without it. So if you put it into the hands of a sort of third-party app, then it kind of takes the heat out of it because it's a kind of triangle situation. Yeah. So I found that immensely helpful. So Do you mind yeah. sharing the name of that app for um, listeners? Yeah, what is it called? Arpact, that's it. Arpact. <laughs> and it's, it's incredibly easy to use and it's really, really, really helped here a lot. 
because you know uh, it's not about controlling your children but I mean children don't necessarily they know what they want but they don't necessarily know what's best for them so for example if you take my children for example you know they've got GCSEs they've got other things they have to do I just don't really want to see them using their young lives spending too much all their time on something that's not going to really serve them in the long run at this critical time of their lives absolutely so that's my thing yeah so I mean obviously you know there's a there's a, there's a kind of a sweet spot to be had um, I think after about an hour I think it's you know, two hours a day after that you know their mental health starts to deteriorate I mean you can you know an hour a day is fine about 12, 13, 14 but if it starts going more than that then I think you're going into sort of they are using their phones to the detriment of other things that they really could be doing for themselves and then also with social media it's to really say on instagram which is really one of their main platforms is that this is a highlight highlight reel of all mm. your friend stuff okay don't believe it they're only putting the best pictures don't fall for the fact that this is their life so we really have to talk through that that stuff with them and not leave them to try and because they, they don't have the perspective that we have you know we're grown-ups we've been through this but they're at vulnerable times in their lives and they're being put into adult situations so we just need to interpret and put, give them perspective, and that's a lot of what I try to do in my books. Completely. So that's a very long answer. <laughs> no, not at all. And is there any evidence behind um, what the actual phone itself is doing, being with our children or, or them growing up around the phone, as in the medical side of if it's um, stopping the brain from developing um, or... Um, yeah. I don't know the, mm-hmm. the waves, the electric waves. I, I'm no expert in this. I have no idea. But that that side of things of phones and iPads and technology. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a, they are understanding the neuroscience of it more and more because basically, if you have a child with a pusher who's more on a phone at this critical time of their brain development when it's being wired, mm-hmm. and obviously certain parts of those brain of that brain is going to develop more in in some ways than others. And also, if you if that child is not uh, being verbal interaction, you know, not actually having one-to-one interaction, you know, the, the, the areas of the brain which are con- controlling their verbal skills are not going to develop as much. Mm. So, I mean, you know, obviously we can look at Baroness Greenfield's book, which caused a lot of controversy when it came out, but is increasingly being acknowledged as, as a as a very worthy worthy piece of research. Um, but, I mean, obviously it just makes common sense. If they are on their phones, they are not doing things that they should be doing and have been doing for millennia as children, which is out there playing in interacting you know holding things that are real out in nature experiencing life they are just not doing those things and you know our children have been doing that for centuries you can't just in one generation expect them to kind of get that kind of experience out of a you know out of of a phone so in your um part one of your book which i've been having uh, a read through you have written a section on growing older, younger. Can you elaborate a little bit on the section in your book? Yeah, that section is interesting because um, I think what I'm saying there is that because we try and make our children more sophisticated, I mean, honestly, there's a, there's a really sad story in that in, in that section from a, that a mother told me that she went to pick up her daughter from a play date and the child had said to her, oh, the other little girl was teasing me because I still sang nursery rhymes. So what we have is we we kind of tend to think it's cute when our children are singing pop songs or pretend to be Britney Spears or whoever it is or Taylor Swift or whatever else. But actually, I think we just need to um, celebrate childhood more mm. and not adultify them more. Because in the same way as I said, like, you know, for, for centuries, our children, they need to go through these natural stages of child development, which they always had done. And if we rush them or try to rush them or allow them to rush themselves or, you know, allow the society or the culture to rush them they're not really getting the experiences that they need you know 
So, um, and also this makes it very fraught in friendships as well, because if they are not playing those kind of childish games or they're not playing board games or they're not learning to take turns and they're just on their phones on social media, sort of presenting an adult, an adult outward look, we are, you know, they're just not really enjoying doing, doing this, the hard work of childhood, which is play. Play is absolutely essential from every point of view, from, you know, building resilience, learning to communicate with people, learning to compromise, um, learning about the world, learning about yourself, learning about what you're capable of, for example. Mm. You know, I mean, if you probably look back to your favourite members and memories in, in childhood, it's probably a memory of something that you did on your own, you know, probably when you realised how you know, strong you were or, I mean, I remember my, my favorite memory of my childhood is, um, I had a swing in my garden and, um, I would go up as high as I could and I would try and kick the leaves of the fir tree, <laughs> you know, so I, it wasn't sort of watching TV or doing something that was older than my age. It was that pure moment of just kind of just being alone in nature by myself and just ha- learning who I was. Yeah. You know I mean? But our children are now so overwhelmed with messages about how they should be and how they should look. They don't really work out who they are or they don't get the time to work out who they are. So we we need to leave them be a bit more and and just kind of, yeah, let them get out there and do things at their own pace rather than praise them for being, oh, you're a big girl. I mean, obviously children naturally want to be older, but also it's all about gratitude and it's talking about how much you enjoyed your childhood and what you loved and what you remember, really valuing their innocent pleasures and just really commenting on them and, you know, just saying, oh, it's darling, it's so lovely to see you just really just, you know, playing, you know, hopscotch in the garden and just saying that you you show that you you love what they're doing you approve and you know how much asking them how much they enjoy and also you know watching what your children are drawn to naturally one of the big themes of my books is the concept of spark where it's an idea where every child has an innate talent which they find easy to do or they're naturally drawn to or would do would do even if an adult didn't ask them to and often that is a clue to their talents and it's something they'll do for hours and then so for example you know, um, you know, when I was a child, I would like write a lot. Not I'd turn out to be a writer. Now, if you can find out what that spark is, or it could be like loving animals, and you know, or it could be just singing and dancing. It's just allowing your child to follow those interests and not trying to kind of turn them into a career like yourself, but just to kind of let them understand what they're good at, and then that brings a whole kind of amount of self-worth which is incredibly important because all children want to kind of feel special by the time they're sort of 12 13 and if they know they have a special talent that's innate and isn't forced then that's really really important and it gives them real strength mm. so there's all sorts of things like this it's really it's about letting them grow naturally without imposing our own adult values on them in your book you also talk about um child's social life and what makes a child popular so what advice can you give to parents out there where school is so very new to them Mm -hmm. um and how to kind of find out if their children are really happy from the from the source from their children yeah absolutely i mean transition to secondary school is a real wrench for children because it's only going from primary schools it's much much bigger situations and there's a whole reordering of social hierarchy so all these kids are getting together they're classifying each other they try desperately trying to form cliques and friendships mm-hmm. and all the rest of it and they're kind of clinging to each other like kind of you know like rescue boats you sort of mean and sometimes for a shy child or a child who's not as sort of socially confident it could be a really really stressful time for them and what i would say in the book is to really talk through the science of friendships and just say look you know you're going to get into, into this situation all these children are going to be vying for social hierarchies 
and you're going to find your place, you know. And it's just like, and also not to put too much pressure on them. I mean, because there's a lot of parents who put a lot of store by social status. They think their child should have a best friend. It should be. They think it should be Miss Clique. I mean, really, all it takes for a child to be happy with their friendships is one or two you know, cl- cl- uh, close friends that they can rely on, you know. They don't have to be super super popular at all. So I think as as we worry more about popularity, we become more anxious, and then that can also convey um, an anxiety to, their, to, 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 the, to the child because our anxiety is contagious to them. Now, see, if they're coming home and they're saying, oh, repeatedly, I mean, every child will come home at one, on, on Sundays and say, oh, I had no one to spend break with or I didn't have no one to, to have lunch with. But if that is repeated and it's a real pattern, then that might be the time to sort of help them a little bit. Because what I talk about in my book is that in the same way as some children come into the world, you know, maybe really good at numbers or really good at music um, or not very, not very good at music or not very good at maths. You know, the social skills we're also we're now appreciating is a type of intelligence which you can be better or worse at. But like maths or like music, if you practice social skills, you can get better at it. So what I talk about in the book is how to do that, how to practice social skills. Because what happens with some children is if, if they're a little bit later, late to decode social cues, um, so, for example, if they don't quite respond quickly enough to a request, to a request or a, an aunt, or don't say quite the right thing, or say something that's a little bit off, or don't use the right body language, or don't introduce themselves very well, or look down, or talk too much about one subject, um, and the other child thinks they're a little bit, make it, and they make another child feel a little bit uncomfortable, mm. that, that those children can get labelled weird, which is a really harsh word, and. Um, it means that they can get socially isolated. But it's really, really possible to help those kids. And it's quite easy, not I wouldn't say easy, but it, it's possible to do. So one of the reasons I wrote the book, because obviously I've been um, you know, through the school system with my children, because I, it's about three in every, roughly, uh, if you have a class of 30, there'll be about three or four kids who may be having problems with that. And as the school, their school life goes on, the, if they're not helped, those kind of divergences get worse. Um, so it's really important for us to kind of spot that when it happens and try and intervene and then try and show how they can make friends better. So, yeah, there's a whole maelstrom of things you can do. You know, secondary school also, it's a bit of a um, – it reaches peak cliqueiness about years sort of eight and nine. Mm-hmm. Right, and then I, what I talk about in the books is there are real hierarchies that form and they organise themselves into sort of queen bees and psychics and, you know, targets. And, and it, it works in the boys too. They have these kind of social orders, which is, whatever, which is what happens whenever human beings get together. They kind of organise themselves according to, role, to roles. So what we're, what we're seeing in sort of years eight and nine is real cliqueiness. But then the, the children who had a lot of social power in those years, by the time it's year... 11 or 12 people have got kind of got wise to it and they're kind of they want to be their own people so all that cliqueiness and all that bitchiness just kind of rises and it falls do you know what I mean yeah so you know it's it's not going to last forever so that's the other thing I'd say but I mean I think if you can we can make our children friendship literate about how social social relationships work how hierarchies work why that person seems to be popular you know if you could say say to the child well is that child really popular or are they feared is it just the fact that they are they look really socially powerful because no one dares cross them because they know that they'll be mean if you do cross them you said to me so if they start to understand i mean a lot of the kids that i mean obviously i i guess you're your um 
your mums are a lot younger. So, but, um, you know, a lot of the kids who, um, mothers said that they give the social, sorry, the friendship maze to their kids to read because the, then they can understand what's going on around them. Yeah. Cause once you understand the machinery that you're caught up in, then you can start to realize it's not just me. It's nothing more with me. I'm not a complete loser or all this stuff. You know, it's not like I'm not unlikable. It's just, this is what happens when humans get together and start to organize themselves. Absolutely. You know, and, it's, it, it's, and then what, what amazed me was there's all this American social science and it hasn't been brought to Britain. Do you know what I mean? And we didn't know this stuff, mm. you know, and in every single class, the same hierarchies form and the same number are so-called popular, the same number are in the middle, the same, um, percentages are neglected or rejected you sort of mean so it's just so if we understand this then we can take control of it what a brilliant idea to give your book to them to read because it, mm. it's exactly what you said I, had i read this when i was at school then mm. you do once you once you know something you realize the patterns and you realize what you're within exactly, and then yeah. you can understand it and you can do something about it yeah. um that's mm. no chance in getting my eight month old to read it <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But maybe one day, maybe one day. I mean, it's always going to be relevant, isn't it? Everything that I've read in your book so far, I've mm. been able to completely mm. um, relate back to how, you know, mm. I was or had friends that felt or I felt or my sister felt at some oh, point in mm. our, in mm. our, you know, friendship life. And even some things are still mm. relevant today, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything we can do where we can help kind of the youngsters, youngsters, almost Amandine's age around eight months I mean is there any evidence mm. to show that socializing them um, oh, in groups really yeah. really helps and well basically you you are your first first you are your daughter's first friend right so she will look to you to know how to behave in the world and how to relate to people and what to do when you talk to them and so she's picking up an awful lot from you and when you have the to and fro conversation with her she's learning how to interact with you and how to speak and how to respond and all your facial expressions she's learning that already so that's really really important so that's why i say i'm sure you are doing already but like talk to them as much as possible play games with them you know games are the way that you reconnect with our children we get down on their level you know when we play games with them they learn to understand what other people think and feel and that theory of mind which is understanding other people's perspective is absolutely critical for friendships Mm -hmm. because it really helps you know you can understand why your friend feels that way then you can learn to meet in the middle and then you can have an easier relationship so yeah that's really important now obviously when she meets other babies she's just going to think they're sort of little toys to play with she's going to be maybe curious she might reach out and pull their hair and all the rest of it she probably thinks they're little dollies right but she's still watching them yeah and you know when the time she's 18 months and she's going she's going to have a little playmate round and then they're going to sit together but they won't, may not be facing each other but they'll be kind of keeping an eye on what each other are doing <laughs> do you know what I mean and then they're going to start to turn and face each other and then they're going to start to interact probably um with little disputes over wanting the same toy and when she learns how it feels to want that toy and that her other friend wants another toy she's going to understand that other people have different perspectives from her and it's going to go on from there and then she's going to start to learn to share and it's going to go on from there so yeah we can't start too early really to teach our children friendship skills it's so important and what i talk about in the book is that friendship is is so key because if you ask children you know what's really important to them part after after their family friends are what makes them feel the best about themselves Mm. so the more we can socialize them and like get them play dates and 
probably you know as much as possible leave their friendships to them because friendships are they're very proud of their friendships because they get to choose their friends and their friends choose them so you know try sometimes I caution against the book is like mums who try to empire build or build cliques or try and make their child the most popular in the class you know friendship is very chemical and it's just you know I don't think anybody's quite sort of managed to boil it down I mean apparently I mean children who are like more similar to each other or have similar interests and have similar yeah that they will tend to be drawn to each other but beyond that I think we have to leave leave them to it as much as possible uh, uh, beyond enabling it yes. and making sure that they do have a friend is like you know giving them lots of chances to, to play together taking them outside um, there's loads of research that says that when kids play outside they get on better because they have more adventures there's less to row over you know um, they're more bonded so yeah just really giving them those opportunities and then just stepping back and kind of letting them get on with it but also as I say being being a, a playmate to your child you know doing board games with them so they learn to take turns and be a good sport because that's very important as well you know because children get very annoyed if there's one child who has a big tantrum when they lose and stuff like that so just really building their skills early on absolutely bringing bringing it right back to the beginning when you're saying um about um you know them when they have playmates and just uh maybe amandine might be um seeing her friends at the moment as dolls or things she actually just we were around at a friend's house the other day and whose baby's a month older than mine and she was just sitting there just staring at him (laughs) really it was very funny and then he would come over and almost pet Amandine like she was a little Mm. cat and it was very very sweet exactly so that's the idea forming the foundations they're learning that they're separate people aren't they Mm. yeah that's really fascinating it's amazing how how much we take for granted and then when you watch you know your little people doing it you think oh my goodness actually this you don't mm. know how to we're going through weaning at the moment and I'm thinking you've got no mm. idea how to swallow something really <laughs> exactly yeah exactly I mean it's, it is the most fascinating brilliant journey I mean that's why I just go back to my other books like the child development it's just like watching they all do the same development you know they might take longer to do things they always do it in the same order i mean it is one of the great wonders of you know of of humans how they develop and how they learn and and watching it unfold like that i mean i just wish i could sort of do it all again you know with my children because at the time i didn't know as much about child development as i do now but i mean if i'd known then it would have been so much more exciting you know but yeah you're very lucky (laughs) (laughs) thank you well i am i am absolutely loving it loving it i don't know why i didn't do it earlier really (laughs) um what advice would you give out um to mums who thinks their children are really being bullied at at school yeah i mean it depends very much what kind of bullying it is i mean if it's i mean there's a new definition of bullying which means that um people are taking a slightly different look at it sort of that basically it has to be from one uh, from a more socially pa- powerful child to a less socially uh, powerful child it has to be persistent and deliberate and intended to, to hurt right. so now obviously um i think that n- no way wishing to sort of downgrade some people's experiences that sometimes people are too quick to call it oh absolutely and, and actually it might in some cases it might be better just to try and empower your child to stand up to it or understand what's going on and just kind of get out of the situation i mean because it seems like now that bullying's been driven underground a little bit more a lot of the um i talk about the book is a lot of the tensions are actually between social relationships between friends and relational aggression which is a lot more subtle but for people who are actually for parents who are absolutely sure that they're 
child is being kind of um, targeted deliberately over a long period of time and the other child is deliberately hurting them, then, yeah, I mean, most of it is to basically stress the child that it's nothing to do with, um, that it's not a failing on their part. Um, I think it's really, really important if they're having a terrible time in school or something like that is to get make sure they have a good friendship circle outside the school because it can feel when you're being bullied at school like it's the end of the world and you have, it really helps the child to remember that they have they are liked and they are valued and you know there's nothing wrong with them by having friends outside school um i think that first of all you have to give the child the tools in order to try and tackle it themselves so there are several different ways of doing that and then if that doesn't work then you're you are having to kind of go down those routes of kind of getting other people involved like teachers teachers especially do need to be very vigilant and the teachers that um have to be vigilant have to understand the social science of bullying as well because you know you can get situations where um you know yeah it can just get very very messy do you sort of mean so you really really need to confide in an emotionally intelligent teacher who understands children's friendships because otherwise it will backfire mm. so yeah no, there's a lot of there's a lot of, a lot of different layers to that really I was talking to my mum a couple of days ago when I mentioned that you were coming on the podcast and she was saying she'll never forget that one of the teachers uh, told them or you know the the mums at that time that the school had made a friendship bench so anyone that felt alone or like they didn't have a friend at school were told to go and sit on that bench and then if a fellow student saw someone sitting on the bench they were meant to sit with them and become their friend. Mm. Now I can think of anything worse. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really that, that's very well intentioned. It doesn't really work. I mean, really no. what teachers need to do um is to um understand the what's going on in the classroom. I mean, what has been shown to help is create a culture of upstanding. So one of the worst things about bullying is when um, the person who's being bullied, when other people who witness it don't say anything Mm. or join in. Okay, but most of the time other kids won't say anything because they're just relieved that it's not happening to them. So that actually is really, really traumatizing for the bully, for the for the victim. So what teachers need to do is create a uh, a culture of upstanding where basically they um, children know that it's good. And it's and it's 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 well, it was heroic, really, just to say no, don't do that to her, because often it all it takes is uh, uh, is someone to to show the bully that they're not being supported, mm. and that what they're doing is not winning them respect or kudos for the bully to stop. So it's not just about the bully and the victim; it's also about the, the classroom around them. So, yeah, I think it's really, really important. I mean, there's a section for the book, um, a section in the book, and I know teachers are massively, massively overworked on the rest of it, but um, I think in my years as a parent, I've been a bit surprised sometimes by some of the lack of, you know, I just think that understanding children's social relationships is really helpful for teachers because it just makes the class so much easier to teach mm. and it makes the children happier. And when the kids are getting on better, they learn better. So I would just, I would just say, yeah, I would just basically go to a teacher who understands it, and then I would ask them what they're seeing, you know, what's happening within this hierarchy. What, who is the child who you think is doing the bullying? What might be the facts around them? Where does that bully get their social power from? Who's giving that bully their social power? I would, yeah, go into it. I don't think it's just a case of, you know, ringing up the other person, the other, the bully, the, you know, the bully in inverted commas parents and saying your child's doing that because no. that doesn't really work. 
No. Because the parents will just get defensive most of the time unless there's some very hard evidence. And even when there is very hard evidence, in today's, in the life we live today, parents get very defensive, very angry, very aggressive. So I think we've got to be a little cleverer about it, really. But most of all, we have to... It's easy, for, easy. It sounds easy to say, but we just have to say you have you have to sort of show your child it's not they've done nothing wrong, that it's just something that's happened time and time again in memorial. And also, what I'm a big proponent of, of in my books is a growth mindset, and that's like it's really awful today, and it's crap and it's shit, but things will get better. Because I think what happens with children who are bullied, they think that this is me for life. Mm. Oh my god, no one will ever like me. So it's really really important again to give them perspective and also like all of us have been bullied at some point in our lives and to say well yeah this happened to me and without sort of dismissing it but just saying look it happened to me it was really horrible at the time I lived through it and here I am just to show that it's just something that's going to pass mm. you know these things don't last forever but to children who are in schools where schools can feel very claustrophobic I mean we have they have to go in every day face the same people they can't really get away from them you know it's terrifying to go to go in there every day but just to show that it's okay it might seem like this is forever but it's really isn't so it's also sort of bolstering your child and just working with them and just showing them that you know they are strong enough to deal with this so what would be your top tips to parents who feel like they need a little bit of help in this area um, and helping their children navigate um, their relationships and friendships? Um, I think it would be really to really to talk through at the end of the day, you know, what's happened in, you know, socially, what's happening in their friendship groups, what do they see is happening in the classroom, you know, who's do who's which who's in which friendship group just because once they can step back they can almost see it as a kind of like you know zoological experiment you know they can Mm. sort of start to see why this person's doing that why that person's not talking to this person why this person's being excluded from that clique and then they but once they understand that 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 science science sounds a bit strong but once they try to once they start to understand human relationships as i say they realize that when it goes wrong for them that there's a way out and it's 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 transitory it's not going to be forever you know friendships i think also to say that friendships come and go you know like a lot of parent children get very upset when they think they've got their best friend and their best friend moves on Mm. but i think if you make it clear from the outset that actually you know very few of us have the same friends we had at school you know we have friends for different times in our lives mm. we have friends we can have lots of different friends and not one friend can serve everything for us can do everything for us so it's good to have lots of lots of different friends you've got different sort of you know roles in your life and not to make best friends the be all and end all don't make cliques the be all and end all don't think popularity is going to make you popular because even the popular kids you know we think that it might look like they're having a great time but actually they've got to work really hard to def- you know they think they've got to defend their position at the top of the social power pile there's lots of people bitching about them you know it's just a question of like getting them through so they are um getting them through just to sort of really enjoy the relationships they have and not get too worked up about them yes. and just and just say look you know if you have two or three good friends you're doing really well you know don't put pressure on yourself just as long as you're you know you're happy and you have someone to confide in someone you can be honest with someone you can spend time with someone you trust then you're doing fine Yes. You know, so yeah. I was just saying actually to um, my sister the other day, isn't it funny how our friendship groups change even so much now? You know, I have a completely different group of friends. Mm. Now I'm a mum. I've got, you know, mum friends <laughs> where we meet up with our children. And um, yeah. I, I do see my other friends, but not so much because 
they want to do dinner and I can't do dinner because I've got, mm. you know, a little one or things like that. And, you know, even all the way through, I'm, I'm sure that it, they'll mm. continue to change as we go through school and all, yeah. all the rest as well. As, as So it's not just, you know, little ones. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I think we would see romanticise friendships and things we have to hold on to the same ones forever, but yeah. I think that just creates more stress on us. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if it's easy and it continues to be easy, then that's fine. But, I mean, some, some friends come and go. Sometimes they return, sometimes they leave. You know, it's just like, you know, when you when you, when you you win a friend, maybe you become distant from and a new friend comes into your life. So I think it's a question of just, yeah, not romanticising it and just, just sort of just, you know, just really relating to the people that you're with and enjoying their company, really, and going from there. And I think yeah. it's the same with kids, really, you know. Cool. Yeah. It has been... Even just the very brief time that we've been chatting, it has been so informative. And just listening to you speak, you're incredibly knowledgeable about all oh, of thank this. You. <laughs> um, so I do urge listeners, if you're listening and you can really relate to some of this, do go and uh, pick up um, the book, The Friendship Maze. It's absolutely fantastic. And just tell us a little bit about your other book that you were telling me about at the beginning as well, because they might want to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, it's called What's My Child Thinking? And it's uh, Practical Psychology for Modern Parents. And it's written with a wonderful child psychologist called Dr. Angara Rodkin, who's got three children of her own. And basically what it is, it's like a kind of, it's the ultimate reference book. So it covers children uh, from two to seven, and it's split into three developmental stages. And basically within those stages, it's got um, all the everyday tricky situations you will face with a child that age. So everything from I won't eat my broccoli to um, I won't put my coat on to I don't want to go to bed. And, you know, as it goes on later, it goes like, for example, um, no one would play play with me today or I don't want to do my homework. And what it does is it basically looks at this situation through the developmental stage and mind of the child so you can understand what they're thinking it then looks at what you might be thinking, how you might be responding as a parent, what kind of biases or kind of stresses you might be bringing to it that might be standing in the way. And then it looks at the child development, does the child development, and then it looks at all the best um, research on what to, to how to respond. So it's not anybody's opinion; it's actually the research. You know what I mean? This, I think the trouble with parenting books now it's like oh this person thinks that person this oh sorry this and this person thinks that you know it's like well mm. what you know what is it you know but at the end of the day you know when you have like large-scale studies and you have real you know real investigations into how children's minds work I think we really need a definitive answer but the great thing about this it sounds awfully complicated but it's incredibly beautifully laid out so everything's in really digestible steps and you can just access it literally in the moment so if your child is having a tantrum and you're just you're just frozen like a rabbit in the headlights and just saying, oh my god what am I going to do actually you just turn to that page and there and there it is you know what I mean I mean I just I just love this book <laughs> sounds fantastic yeah I know it's very beautiful as well so they've done a beautiful job illustrating it so yeah it's really great thank you so so much for um coming on the podcast I really appreciate it and I'm sure I will be throwing questions your way when my little one starts growing into herself well lovely so, to talk so to you thank you so much and there we have it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Now, I have a copy of What's My Child Thinking to give away. I think the easiest way to do this is to pop it on my Instagram. So head over to Instagram Mum Talk Podcast and I will put on there information on how you can be in with a chance of winning your own copy of What's My Child Thinking. Any questions at all, remember you can DM me on Instagram or email me at mumtalkpodcast at gmail 
gmail.com and I will come back to you next week you have me so I will catch up with you all about Amandine our latest travels to London and I can't wait to do that then I hope you have a lovely rest of your week lots of love bye